I honor life by not taking it anymore. Not a fish's life, not a calf's, no one's brother or child. I did violence. I put it between my teeth and it formed my blood and I took blood. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Alterescu and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Before we get to today's guest, let me mention a book I just completed and that is apropos of the topic of our discussion today. Toward the end of my recent podcast with my friend Josh Rapp, Josh discussed the book Solitary, the vivid and frightening autobiography by Albert Woodfox, who in 2016 was released from Angola Prison in Louisiana after over four decades in solitary confinement, and in which Woodfox describes how he kept his humanity and his soul intact all those years. Josh gave me a copy of the book, and I read it in anticipation of today's discussion. So, now let's get to today's discussion. While visiting the Golden Notebook bookstore in Woodstock last summer, my daughter Melanie and I met and struck up a conversation with bookseller, author, and poet Gretchen Primack. It turns out that Gretchen is also an educator in a more formal sense. Gretchen has taught and or administrated with prison education programs, mostly college, in maximum security prisons since 2006. Gretchen recently released a new book of poems called Visiting Days, which is inspired and informed by her years of firsthand experience teaching and administrating in maximum security prisons. Visiting Days has been described as a collection of short, keen, dramatic monologues, a work of advocacy as well as of poetry. Gretchen, welcome to the podcast. I was moved by the poems in Visiting Days, especially when read in conjunction with Solitary, the Woodfox autobiography. I was particularly struck by the voice in your poem, Senate, that refers to this non-life of life, and that says, if I'm not asleep, I hurt. I was also struck by the anxiety expressed by the voice in Andre Going Home, contemplating release from prison and saying, I will come to know of Whitehead's manifold frustrations of liberty. The reference, of course, is to Colson Whitehead and his wonderful Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Underground Railroad. Whitehead used the phrase manifold frustrations of liberty in conjunction with the dilemma of a black man finding his purpose after as Colson put it, slipping the yoke of slavery. The connection drawn between slavery and the mass incarceration of black men, which is evoked in Visiting Days, and also discussed in Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, is so troubling. On a more prosaic level, the lack of preparation for freedom after slavery in the 19th century and after confinement today is also troubling, and foretells the possibility of difficulties ahead. Gretchen, I can go on and on, but I'd really like you to tell us about your new book 
and the voices you capture in visiting days, and also your work in the prisons. Well, I'm glad to do that. Where should I start? When, when did you start the book, Visiting Days, and what was it, were you truly inspired by your work in the prisons? Uh, definitely inspired by my work in the prisons. For the first many years that I was doing that work, people would ask me, oh, are you writing about it? Since I'm a poet and I already had a couple of books out. Um, and I wasn't because my work was teaching. It was uh, supporting students. It was academic advising. It was being in that world as a professor and an administrator. It was not there to be there as fodder for a writing project. Uh, but between that job and my next gig, in, uh, with incarcerated people, I had this break. And in that break, it was as if all of those poetic thoughts or thinking as a writer rather than as an academic support and teacher, just all of it came rushing into the front of my brain. And I began to write without even thinking about it. And that's how the project started. I didn't know that it was going to be a whole book of connected poems, uh, mostly persona poems, which just means that they are in the voices of other people, in this case, imaginary uh, incarcerated men in an imaginary prison. But I was just writing and trying to be not, not analytical about the situation, I would say, more to be close to the situation that I had just left, to think about it, to be with the men that I knew, to be inspired by the men that I knew, to give voice to some of the issues that were going on in the lives of men who had become friends. And so uh, talk about the, you moved from one gig to the other. So what, what were the two precisely? Well, one, at that point, um, I left one college program to run a program in a jail. Um, and that was going to be for men and women. Up until then, I had only worked with men. And again, it would be in a jail rather than a prison. Up until then, I had only worked in prison. Eventually, I went back to prison, which is an atmosphere that is more conducive to education, in my experience. Is that because of the longer term that people serve? Exactly. People have time to figure out what they want and then choose education. In jail, where people are so, have, are so recently incarcerated, um, their minds are not looking at the forward, at the future as much as at their past and present. And the, um, uh, you said a college program, so which college is this, was your work associated with? At that point it was Bard College, and now it is uh, SUNY, Ulster, which, and this program is administrated through uh, an organization called Hudson Link. And what is Hudson Link? They uh, create and fund college programs in prisons around New York State. What they do is they partner with colleges and universities. Uh, in Bard's case, the program is part of Bard College, so they're partnering with themselves. But yep. with Hudson Link, which is not a college, um, they always partner with and fund and support the colleges that end up supplying the uh, degrees. 
Oh, so, and there are actual degrees that come out of your program. Oh, sure. Yeah. In the case of Bard and in the case of SUNY Ulster, these students are getting an education uh, commensurate with those on uh, a more traditional campus of the college. And uh, in your poems, I don't recall uh, any of the in-persona voices talking about school or, or learning. Yeah, there are a couple. There are? Mm -hmm. so, so which ones would those be? Uh, Kareem. Oh, good. Mm -hmm. So in the table of contents or the titles of the poems are the name of the person speaking and then where they're speaking from. So it could be from the laundry, it could be from the bullpen, from the phones, or from various wings where their cells are. But in a couple of cases, they're speaking from the school building. So actually, I see one called knowledge. Would that be apropos? Uh, no, <laughs> actually. Uh, his name is Knowledge, and ah, that's one of my favorite uh, poems in the collection, for sure. And he is, this character is inspired very much by someone that I know. Um, but, and he did this man that I know whose name was Intelligent, hence his... Uh, Actual name or the name you gave? Uh, I, I didn't give him that name. Oh, okay. Um, many times people who are incarcerated take on nicknames. They may supply them themselves. It may be something that someone else supplied that catches on. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, as, as differentiated from their government name. So with and some of them... government name, I like that. I did not know their government name. So intelligent, I don't know what's on his birth certificate. No. I know him as Intel. And so uh, knowledge is, would you read knowledge and then, then talk about it? Absolutely. So knowledge is, takes place in the East Wing. Yes, so um, <clears throat> all of these poems are set in an imaginary prison, which is very much like the ones where I've taught. Uh, and so knowledge, his cell is in the East Wing. And here's what knowledge has to say. I honor life by not taking it anymore. Not a fish's life, not a calf's, no one's brother or child. I did violence. I put it between my teeth and it formed my blood and I took blood. Now I eat what they ate in Eden before violence. Now I ask forgiveness for the life I've taken that wasn't mine to take. The man and the calves and fishes, the chicks and their mothers, the cops laugh. Their work is domination. They lord over, and some men on the block call themselves kings. But I am done with that in every soul of me, in every body. That's beautiful. Thank you. I was fortunate enough to come here to the Golden Notebook a month or two ago when you did a reading when the book after the book came out. And I think you talked about being a vegetarian? I right? talked about being a vegan, a vegan. and um, that I bonded with my friend Intel because he too was vegan. And we had come to it from different places. I had come to it because I care about animals. I don't want them to be killed or exploited in my name. It's pretty simple. But as well as just a general progressive sensibility. So if I care about nonviolence, if I care about the environment, which is deeply, deeply troubled by animal agriculture, climate change, huge, huge contender. 
uh, as a feminist, what goes on in animal agriculture, the exploitation of females is really grisly, and I'm, I, I can't, as a feminist, condone that. So there's a lot of ways and reasons, world hunger, that I am vegan. Mm -hmm. It fits into my life plan. For him, um, it was a couple of things, and one of them was simply a renunciation of violence. He had been part of um, a world in which violence was every day, and he was part, very much part of that world. And he, in renunciating that, uh, you know, did the very natural extrapolation of not being violent to other sentient beings who are just as, you know, desirous of life as we are, and of uh, and of peace as we are. He also was coming to really love himself in a way that made him deeply respect his own body. And in doing so, he wanted uh, to have the healthiest body and to feel that he was being very, very respectful of his body. Um, it's very easy out here for us to be vegan. It actually is. Um, as much as our more conservative nature say, oh my God, I can't make changes like that. But I will tell you that in prison, it is not. It is unbelievably hard. And I'm, I'm yeah. really, um, I'm, I just find him to be heroic. Yeah. You know? We are recording on the second floor of the truly great Golden Notebook Bookstore in Woodstock, New York. Sorry for the occasional background noise from book enthusiasts. Can't keep them down. I, I asked you about whether any of the poems took place, uh, talked about education. I had right. forgotten, uh, and, and you mentioned Kareem as one example, I had forgotten that Kareem's voice came out of the sc a school building. Yes, and Jacob's voice also comes out of um, a school building. Same same school building uh, in your mind? Exactly, yeah. So usually prisons just, they have an area, not always, it depends, um, that is dedicated to classrooms. And most prisons, unfortunately, do not have higher education. But most of them have something uh, pre-GED, GED classes. Um, so there are rooms that have seating and chalkboards or whiteboards. And, and instructors, educators like yourself who come in. Yeah, so in that case, it's somebody who comes in probably five days a week and does GED classes. Um, and how many of the prisoners, generally speaking, are receptive to this educational initiative? Well, it, it really varies. Every, every prison has incredibly bright and driven people whose minds, who would love to expand their minds in this way. Um, many of them are autodidacts who are already learning as much as they can just through the prison library, the law library, uh, books that they're given or, or borrow. Uh, there are also people who are skeptical about that and mm -hmm. um, don't right. feel that it's for them. But it's a terrible shame that it's not everywhere because when you meet these people with such, of course, bright minds, I mean, every collection of humans has very intelligent people in it and that's not different just because they're locked up. Um, and you realize what they could be doing in the world if they had education it becomes very frustrating that most of them don't. So some of my past students are getting their PhDs. One of them is getting a PhD in Compolitic at 
uh, Cornell starting wow. in the fall. One of them is almost finishing his PhD in sociology at NYU. I've got a good friend at the Ford Foundation, um, another couple of friends who just graduated from social work school at Hunter. So, you know, they, they have a lot to offer the world. And when I think about their counterparts in prisons where they cannot avail themselves of that undergraduate degree that can lead them to, to these other right. paths, it's, it's upsetting. Right. Yeah. And uh, during your reading, uh, during that day, your discussion, you mentioned, and I don't want to fail to remember this, uh, a donation program for books for prisoners. Uh-huh. And what was that? Well, many communities, certainly many cities, have ways to donate books to people who are incarcerated. So um, there's one called Books Through Bars. There's one called Books to Prisoners. Um, and you can just Google uh, book donations to prisons and find the one that's closest to you. What people do who are incarcerated is they'll write a letter to these services and they'll say, hey, I would love a copy of you know, Solitary by Albert Wood Fox, or I would love um, a dictionary or a Spanish-English dictionary, or do you have um, some African-American literature that you could send me? So it could be specific books or types of books, um, and they can do that because there are people like us who donate the books and yeah. donate stamp money. They're all volunteer. They have, they usually meet in bookstore basements or you know churches or uh, community organizations and send out the books from there using donated funds. Yeah, that's great. So in in the uh, poem Kareem, uh, you start with a, such an interesting quote from Tanahisi Coates: "The pursuit of knowing was freedom to me," and um, that it's consistent with what you just said. Uh, it's freedom in, in many ways. Uh, when you uh, when you do read, you, you explore. You have the opportunity to explore things outside outside your immediate surroundings. And if you're in prison, that must be so important. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just communicating with people who you wouldn't have access to, I think, is great for both counterparts. I mean, I want to communicate with people that I wouldn't have access to because they're behind barbed wire and they want to communicate with me. Um, so it's, you know, just we each get a different perspective. Yep. The, the fuller quote, I, 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 I've read Between the World and Me, I didn't remember the quote, but I, look, I looked at it just uh, uh, to understand it better. And the fuller quote from uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates is, the pursuit of knowing was freedom to me, the right to declare your own curiosities and follow them through all manner of books. I was made for the library, not the classroom. The classroom was a jail of other people's interests. The library was open, unending, free. Slowly, I was discovering myself. I think the, these students who do gain a lot from the classroom might say, well, a nice, healthy, you know, batch of both is oh, good. Oh, yeah, you know? good yeah. balance. Yeah. Not, not for everybody. Yeah, especially if the library that you have access to isn't, isn't complete. You know, yes. then a way to get what you need is from... Um, the books that are brought in by professors or who are introduced to you by professors and that you can get uh, sometimes through interlibrary loan um, or through family members who are willing to, to give those to you. So Woodfox in his book, um, he doesn't talk at all. I don't, again, I don't remember him talking about uh, classes, but he talks a lot about books. 
Absolutely. They, they were forced to be autodidacts because they didn't have access to education in this way. So they would share materials among themselves. So autodidact is actually such a good description. He, his mother thought he was very smart. I don't know how smart he was going in, but unfortunately he had a long, long time to be in. But in his book he talks about uh, Native Son, uh, Richard Wright, he talks about Frederick Douglass and Malcolm X and Whitney Young. Uh, and I, I know this was written, his book was written with a, um, uh, with somebody. Mm -hmm. But uh, what comes through is how much he learned uh, by reading, how, how much uh, books helped him probably helped him preserve his uh, sanity over the years. Yeah, yeah, and his fellowship with other people yes, who wanted well. to learn. You yes. know? And that's the thing, is that he, he was ushered into, you know, through the Black Panther Party and his, his counterparts uh, who were interested in social justice and such in the prisons. He, he, I think they saved each other's lives through their communion, right? Through being there for each other, through yep. knowing that each other was there. And also through the way that they learned together, you know, and they really introduced him to uh, a consciousness. Yep, yeah, yeah. And so your your poetry, similar to prose, of course, is uh, a way to communicate. Mm -hmm. um, and in solitary, uh, Woodfox uh, says, when you have no power, you often use language as a defense mechanism. We lived in a world where a black person who stood up for other blacks could go to jail. In many cases, language was all we had. Hmm. So using your poetry to, uh, in persona, express the voices of these prisoners is, communicates for them in a way that, for the most part, they cannot communicate. Well, they, I mean, I don't see it as either or. There are amazing poets who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, and I can never do what they can do, which is speak from their experience yes. of incarceration. I can go into the prison, and I've spent a lot more time in prison than most people who aren't incarcerated, but I can leave, and that's a whole different ballgame, you know? Um, so I want to be an ally for incarcerated men and women, um, and they often, and then they can do the same themselves. There are incarcerated uh, people who do get their poems out into the world, uh, it may happen while they're incarcerated, it may happen afterwards. Um, I, I'm kind of a, a compliment to them rather than uh, taking their place. And I purposely did not try to speak in the voices of real people in this book because I am not them, right? So what I can do is write imaginary voices. I don't want to speak for anyone. They can speak for themselves. But I do want to speak about the situation, and I think persona poems are a good way to do that. You're a poet. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But in, in other words, persona poems, so in the voices of imaginary people, rather than my voice, yes. right? Yes. which I find you know, much less interesting, and I can do much less with. And so uh, one of the things I said in my introduction was that um, in Wood Fox's book, he talks about how he... He doesn't talk about it. He, he really exhibits how he was able to maintain his sanity. Sometimes there was a thin thread. And, and he quotes, uh, in his book, he quotes from Nelson Mandela, 
The challenge for every prisoner is how to survive prison intact, how to emerge from prison undiminished, how to conserve and even replenish one's beliefs. So what is your experience in this regard, and, and maybe some of it comes out in your poetry, about how prisoners who were in maximum security for a long time, how they were able to survive uh, maintaining their sanity or not? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Uh, I think some, I mean, look, everybody struggles with that, it, it, even out here. I, you know, we struggle with our sanity. But yes. given the, the tax on the mind and soul and body of incarcerated people, yeah, there's definitely a struggle that I've witnessed. And I think that people do it, like out here, um, in a number of ways. So for some people, it's maintaining a connection with family. For some people, <clears throat> it's finding uh, a beloved. For some people, it's finding art. For some people, it's finding education. For some people, it's finding fellowship, uh, you know, friendship. Uh, for some people, religion. For some people, it's getting away from religion. So it, it, it happens in a number of ways all the time. And I do try to have poems in here that address all of the above. So somebody, there's someone in here who, who his life is saved by visual art, becoming, you know, growing his, his um, talents as a visual artist. For some, it's education in here. Uh, for one man, it's, it's religion. Uh, specifically, he's Christian, becomes Christian inside, which I saw many times, um, Christian, Muslim. Um, so, yeah, I do try to address that coping. You know, how yeah. do you cope? So is there another poem that you'd like to read before we conclude? Um, sure, let's see. You I know what? Yes. Just to end on a, a slightly higher note, why oh, don't good. why don't I read the one about the man who finds himself through visual art? Um, in this, uh, his name is Ben. He's speaking from the South Hall, um, and just to know, sometimes there's a lot of contraband in prison, and it could be everything from a certain kind of pen that was fine yesterday, but it's not fine today because somebody used it to do something and now it's on the no list. Um, so that's contraband. And sometimes that's grandfathered in when, if you already had it. And so those items are then called heirlooms. Um, the other thing that you may want to know is that uh, COs or corrections officers are also called cops inside. Okay. Ben, South Hall. I had enough taken from me, but I have this charcoal and these pencils. Now contraband, but for me, grandfathered. Heirlooms. My delight on paper. My arm is state green, but at the end of it is a moving hand and it colors, making a hand the color of my hand. Escher loved ordering non-Euclidean geometries, regular and irregular divisions of the plane, the nature of space. I love ordering non-Euclidean geometries, tessellations, the nature of space. My arm is dressed in state greens, but my hand is dressed in charcoal and pencil, and I can move my wrist and pencil any ways I please and make my order. 
Even the cop at his desk is mine to order. A shape on a sketch pad, three lines, a flick, shading. This morning, he fastened a blue shirt over his hollow chest. He buttoned his white buttons one by one. Now on my pad, he is a man whose hollow chest is cut open for all to see. Well, thank you. There's so much overlap between visiting days and solitary. I, I read visiting days first, and then someone referred me to solitary, and you had mentioned solitary in your talk. And uh, I, I'm not going to say you capture it all, but you capture a lot of Albert Woodfox's 40 days in sol 40 years in solitary confinement, and just the the his the history in hundreds of pages that he uh, describes uh, his history. It's captured in that poem, and it's captured in so much of what you write. Well, that's a tremendous compliment. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I, I do mean it. So thank you for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been a great pleasure for me, Howard. Thank you. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com. Our website also includes links to the books and other resources we refer to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible, even on paternity leave looking after Jake, for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, my bookmark, and other merchandise to come. Let me know if you'd like a bookmark sent to you. Melanie, as always, is in control of most everything and has provided overall creative direction. Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support. And, of course, Carol is my muse. Jake continues to giggle and grow and to express a three-month-old's interest in being read to. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of my guests. And we recently launched a little free library at Marty's Mercantile in West Shokin, New York. Another branch is expected to launch shortly. Thanks also to the great Anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments, either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time. Testing one, two, three, four. Testing one, two, three, four.